there are people with severe yes. severe challenges that I do not have and it would be an insult yes. then to just dwell upon myself as to woe is me when I've been given so much that was Karen Bravo, Dean of IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. This month, we'll continue our conversation with corporate leaders in the central Indiana area who are really making a difference in how their companies and communities embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion. On this episode, we'll have a bit of an academic twist on our corporate vantage point. Today, we're speaking with Dean Karen Bravo as our Women's History Month guest. Dean Bravo made history in 2020 as becoming the first diverse woman and only one of two women of the 13 deans of Indiana University, Robert H. McKinney School of Law. For over 15 years, Dean Bravo was a faculty assistant professor of law at McKinney, where she developed a specialized expertise in human trafficking and international affairs. In her current role, Dean Bravo has committed to increasing the diversity, equity, and inclusion of students, professors, and administrators at IUPUI and the law school. Notably, Dean Bravo developed a campus-wide leadership development and succession planning program dedicated to supporting women and diverse individuals for advancement in the ranks of higher education. And she's received numerous accolades and recognitions for her academic and civic contributions. So Dean Bravo, I'm so pleased to welcome you to this Women's History Month edition of the Freedom Forum. Thank you so much, Angela. It's great to be with you. Always great to be with alums of the IU McKinney School of Law. Yes, ma'am. You know it, representing, and I'm super excited to have you. Will you tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other personal factors that led to you not only becoming an attorney, but an academic, a teacher, a law professor, and an inspirer of students? How much time do we have for that question? How far back do you want to go? Whatever you'd like to share, we want to hear. I'm Jamaican, grew up in Jamaica, went to university in Jamaica as we call it, you call it college, <laughs> before coming to the U.S. So some of my background, if there are any Jamaicans, or I would say, hey, yardies out there, <laughs> just saying hello. I went to primary school, uh, St. George's Girls School, then high school, St. Andrew's High School, before going to the University of the West Indies, where I studied languages. I mm -hmm. actually studied French, Spanish, and German, wow. and my idea was that I was going to become a globetrotter linguist kind of a person. It took a while, while being in the U.S., including working at a law firm in a support capacity, that I decided I'm going to become a lawyer. I think I'm as smart as these people. Okay. I took the LSAT, did really well, and ended up going to Columbia Law School. Came out of Columbia, did the usual corporate law, first in New York and then in Boston. Okay. Paid off my loans and then thought, well, what next? Right. Columbia had this OPD professional development newsletter that had a great and interesting advertisement about a rule of law program in the former Soviet Union. So I applied and was assigned to the Republic of Armenia. So I then spent a year in the Republic of Armenia doing rule of law reform work. But before then, I'd applied to NYU to do a master's. I decided I really did want to go into teaching. Mm -hmm. So I applied to NYU because they had a trade regulation, LLM, and I was particularly interested in a trade regulation topic. And then as I practiced, I realized in practicing, 
and finding what was the thing that brought you joy, understanding and learning more about the practice of law was gratifying. But there was something about being in law school and just be getting deep into topics, the whys yeah, yeah. and the hows that was not satisfied through the practice of law. Selfishly, being an academic, I can keep learning yeah, all sure, the sure. time. Yeah, sure. And whether in teaching a class, I'm still learning right. because teaching the same subject year one versus teaching it year seven, you're learning along sure. with uh, your students. The questions that they ask also help you to develop and deepen your knowledge of the topic. I know friends who are in academic settings, and they have conveyed to me there are a lot of political challenges in the academic world with regard to career advancement, particularly Mm -hmm. for women and diverse women. I'll point you to a concept of invisibility and hyper Visibility. Yes, yes, yes. We are actually reading as part of the Dean's Leadership Council of the IUPUI campus a book called Presumed Incompetent, and it's a second volume of chapters by women of color, academics, variety of disciplines. Sure. And they talk about that experience or those different experiences, the concept of being picked to pieces in order to to fit into the circumstances, you have to take away or discard parts of yourself. For myself, I'm going to say, I think I have been lucky because I have observed and experienced things, but I've tried not to dwell on them. As a new law professor, going to the American Association of Law Schools has a conference each year for new law professors, really to get people acquainted, give them tips, you're going into teaching, scholarship. Along with that, there was a separate conference for new law faculty of color. And one of the uh, pieces of advice was... Don't talk in faculty meetings because you may think your colleagues are talking about this subject, but really it's a subject that came up five years ago. And so this topic is by proxy. Spend a bit of time observing before getting engaged. And so I very much used that tactic to observe what was going on. I think one of the things that faculty members of color, both male and female, is being in the classroom and the expectations of students. Have your students ever had teacher and instructor of color, whether in K through 12, college, or now in law school? Are you the first person that they have had and you are female and black? Whatever kinds of stereotypes that come with that. So I have had that experience of being in the classroom and feeling challenged by students. But I think students challenge their faculty members in every guise. I would respond by just having a very tightly run classroom, always wearing the suit. And I didn't dwell on it because I think that helps to take so much off your energy. Having come from Jamaica and grown up in Jamaica helped my perspective in that regard because I did not grow up having the identity, you are a minority. I was a person 
until I came to the U.S. But now I'm a <laughs> black person a different way. I'll also say that I had colleagues who were great mentors. It's a trajectory. It's a journey that we all are going through as individuals and as a society. One of our guests was Angel Henry. She interviewed 30 black women in STEM across the country and just talked about some of their experiences. And as a black woman, you can sit in a room and feel like nobody sees you. You've made a comment. Nobody even acknowledges you're completely invisible. But make a mistake or do something wrong. And my goodness, it's on the front page news. It's definitely a challenge. And I want to make clear that's not my concept. It's a concept from this book, Presumed Incompetent. Did you foresee this path? What characteristics beyond that confidence do you think you possess? So I'll acknowledge we all still have this imposter syndrome, right? It's always as if you're you're entering primary school again. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to high school and you're always starting over. Yeah, yeah. And I keep remembering, you know, when you were a little kid and you saw the kids in middle school, you thought, oh, they're so big, they know everything, and then you become the kid. It's a sense of humility that there's always mm. more to learn, mm. more to know. I've been told that I'm calm. I am able you- to respond calmly. I think I'm also trying to understand where the other person and where the challenges are coming from. I also want to mention my parents. My mom, who grew up in a tiny village in St. Thomas, Jamaica, Mm -hmm. and, you know, met my dad in Kingston, had her three kids, and we were supposed to be doctors, by the way. So I was a huge disappointment. Yeah, yeah. Not becoming a doctor, and I think only becoming dean. Then finally, I'd accomplished something, (laughs) right? Just now. But, But Always. It was education and hard work. Always. My mom taught us as we were growing up, you just didn't go to high school. You had to take a test to decide where you're going to go to the good high school. And so every weekend, she taught us so that we could take this test. All her kids succeeded. Her three kids went to the high school. All of them got bachelor's degrees. And that's the fundamental thing that you continue to persist. I think that has helped me. In addition to, of course, I keep mentioning mentors. You can't do it on your own that's right. that's if right. you don't have folks who see something in you. Yeah. I didn't see myself as a dean. I was very happy to be a faculty member, got tenure, and then, of course, I started getting other things to do. I got involved in the Next Gen program, yes. in creating that program. And you begin to see that it is possible for you to help develop structures that help others. Right, right, right. And I think that was the start of my journey into administration, that I was tapped to do something. I wanted to do it well, sought out leadership training, helped develop leadership training and succession planning on the campus, and it snowballed from there. Yeah. Now, how to keep joyful? How can you not be joyful when you realize we are privileged? Absolutely. I'm living a privileged life no matter the challenges that I may have. I, I keep going back. I grew up in Jamaica. I saw real poverty. It still exists. Yeah. It still exists here. And I look around the world, the challenges that we have now. There are people with severe, yes. severe challenges that I do not have. And it would be an insult yes. then to just dwell upon myself as to 
woe is me, when I've been given so much. That's right. Yeah, with this little baby born in, you know, the hospital in Jamaica. How and how did she end That's up here? Right. I don't know. That's right. How did she end up here? So that is a perfect example, and you said it earlier, is humility. Humility is absolutely tied to joy. Because if you stay humble, right, and, and are thankful for what you have rather than focusing on what you don't have, it's very easy to stay joyful, right? It can always be worse. You could always have less. You could always, always be in a worse position or a worse place. I mean, and I think some of the things that are happening in this world, my goodness, right now, if it doesn't make you realize how privileged and blessed we are just to be able to walk around, right? Yes. Just to be able to say, I don't agree with you. Yes. And not have to worry about getting locked up or, right. you know, those minor things. What we've learned and what is clear <laughs> is things aren't always going to be that way, right? No. I'm seeing things happen right now. Yeah. And in these last three and four years, I never thought I'd see in my life. We are together on this little blue right. planet. Right. There's more that joins us together than pulls us apart. And that's what we really need to understand fundamentally, that love of humanity, but not only humanity, love of our planet. Right. Love of beautiful nature around us. Right. Let that seep in, I think, is a way to continue to keep joy. We want to congratulate and celebrate you in this historical role. I think just having the opportunity to get to know you over the last few weeks and months, you are absolutely a calming force. There are some wins, right? There are some things to be celebrated. You are someone, again, who's local and are doing big things, things that haven't been done before. You also know, like I do, I'm sure, that President Biden recently nominated Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson from D.C. as the first black woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. First ever, first nomination. Even that, to me, particularly in a time where democracy as an institution is being globally and domestically questioned and tested, the fact that we can still get there, right? We can still have such a historical nomination. What would you say about the negative reaction? And I can tell you, I personally was offended by that. I will say I was not personally offended. I saw it as... Uh, tactic. It's a tactic and a strategy to attack this woman of color, then unknown, because of the high stakes of the Supreme Court. It's a piece of the rhetoric that, unfortunately, we have in this country. Why did I not get offended? If you actually believe what you are saying, you are extremely ignorant and should be pitied. If you're doing it instrumentally, you are tearing apart your country and should be pitied as well for not seeing what you're doing. Yeah. You're not seeing the country for what it is and can be, which is a multicultural, beautiful country. If you travel, human beings are fascinating and wonderful. Absolutely. And to have people from so many cultures here to be able to learn from and grow from is a huge privilege. And so to not be able to see that you are cutting yourself off from higher evolution and understanding and being one with right. your fellow human beings. It is a shame because those people who are saying it because they believe it, unfortunately, they foster that belief in 
negativity in others yep. and those who are doing it instrumentally the same. The impact is the same. So it's worse because they are inculcating in the culture. They're continuing to bake into the culture this sort of dominance and hierarchy right. of race. Right. As I was coming over today, I was thinking of a quote from a Bob Marley song, until the system that denominates one race inferior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited, yeah. everywhere will be war. And he was singing about the apartheid in South Africa, but until that philosophy yeah is ended, we will not be at peace with each other. We won't be coming together to benefit ourselves, our descendants, our planet. And uh, unfortunately, that's the sort of attitude that we see displayed. Even more and more today. But, I, in, a, but in a sort of hidden way, because it's officially not accepted to say that one race is inferior and another superior. But by... Using coded language, right. you put forward that uh, philosophy. And of course, now I'm reading um, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's cast. We have to think our way out of it. We have to educate our way out of it and realize that, or hope, I keep hoping, knowledge, education is the path forward. Yeah. And really seeing the humanity in all of us. Yeah. And seeing the the beauty and the difference, yes. right? Yes, and having perspectives that help to illuminate. Maybe you've got a problem and you're looking at it, and someone with a different perspective comes in and blows it apart because they've got a, an insight yeah. from their culture or their upbringing yeah, that absolutely. we otherwise would not have had. Yeah. Dean Bravo, you have expertise in human trafficking and exploitation and we know that many of the women and girls involved in human trafficking are from underrepresented populations, whether they're black women. I know I have stats here that says about 40% of victims are black women or black people. Latinx is a major. And then we have, you know, all diverse populations, including indigenous people, people of color, immigrants, and LGBTQ plus individuals who also are often victims of human trafficking. As I think about this craziness that's happening in Russia and this black female WNBA all-star who's caught over there mm -hmm. in what seems to be just a political mess. Some of the craziness in my head goes to what awful things might they be doing to her and particularly because she is a openly gay black superstar. From your legal expertise, how does human trafficking and international law affect lived experiences of diverse women, particularly here in Indiana? When we say human trafficking, what do we mean? I think very frequently when we say human trafficking, immediately the thought goes to sex trafficking. Yeah, yeah. And I would say to my students, well, sex is sexy. So we spend as policymakers, as legislators, as the public, focusing on sex trafficking, which, yes, I agree, it's horrible and we have to address, but we have to address exploitation writ large. So in human trafficking, you're talking about not only sexual exploitation of the vulnerable, but also labor trafficking, yeah, yeah. forced marriage, right. uh, the, the varieties of 
forms of exploitation are infinite, unfortunately. Sure. The big difference between human trafficking and slavery, and this is an area of, of research for me, human trafficking is illegal. So there are laws, international laws, to prohibit human trafficking, and domestic laws that contrasts with slavery, which was legal. So one would think, as someone who is trafficked as a human being, if I were to escape the person who is trafficking me, then I would be rescued. I'd be rescued by the society. It's not that simple. The trafficker will say to you, let's say you are an undocumented immigrant. Sure. If you go to the police, you're going to get deported. And furthermore, I know where your family lives, your parents, whatever. And it's true. You go to the police, you're an undocumented immigrant, you may be seen as the person who is committing a violation of law. So how do our laws protect the vulnerable? Do we see beyond the kinds of activities that we've criminalized to protect those who are actually subordinate in that relationship. Right, right, right. Similarly, many states in the U.S., I think they've started that now, the question of child sexual abuse and child prostitution. Many states would prosecute the child, not the person who was prostituting the child. And so we have to examine the legal frameworks in which we're dealing. We also have to understand that human trafficking is part of a sliding scale of exploitation. And one of the questions that I ask is, are we, we, each of us, are we dependent on that exploitation Mm -hmm. for the modern life that we live? So the chocolate that I enjoy, then I find out, well, there are youngsters in Ghana who are taken from their families to be on these plantations. The seafood from Thailand or Vietnam or elsewhere that I may enjoy, immigrant men are taken captives on fishing vessels and they're helping to fish for these products, which then come to me. So we are intertwined and entangled Mm. in a system where we are looking for cheap stuff. If you can have the labor be cheap, then you get to the consumer, me and you, right. and we love the cheap stuff. Right, right? right. So how do we look at the whole supply chain and understand that we are participating as consumers yeah. for the end product? The reason why they're exploiting these people is because they know you, me, we want the You're cheap gonna stuff. You're going to buy it. We're going to buy the yeah, cheap yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there have been laws passed. California has been very uh, forward-thinking with its laws requiring that companies report about their supply chain, who the third parties they're buying from, etc. But it is not perfect. It's not perfect at all in identifying where that exploitation resides because it comes all along the way. Mom didn't mean to sell her kid to work on that Ghana plantation, but mom has a number of kids, and she's not able to feed them. So it's a vulnerability, economic vulnerability that's being being Mm -hmm. exploited. So Mm -hmm. how do we contribute toward helping people be secure, both economically, psychologically, emotionally? I mentioned the psychological because the kids, the young girls who are exploited in sex trafficking, often they form 
emotional bonds with their their trafficker. Yeah. Why? Because they may have grown up in circumstances where they were never given that love. Yeah, yeah. So the exploiter is able to have them transfer that affinity to the exploiter, yeah. the pimp, yeah. who yeah. then is viewed as a member of their family yeah. because nobody else has given them that. Right. And so starting from K to 12, before birth, we have a responsibility for those children. They are the future. And if we don't take care of our own, that's what will happen to them. They will be exploited. It's just the question of what is the degree of yeah. exploitation. Yeah. And so it, it's a very entangled subject that it's not easy to resolve, but it's not merely the law. It's also the way in which we regard each other. Yeah. When I was teaching about human trafficking, one of my favorite, in air quotes, examples <laughs> was about a exploited labor force in Florida. They were working on a plantation of some kind. I forget what it was that they were growing. And they were actually captives. And that plantation abutted a golf course. So the people on the golf course would see the folks working on this plantation, but it never occurred to them that they could be prisoners because they were Latinx. Of course, I expect the farm workers in Florida to be right. Latinx because you've got this guest worker program. So they're right before your eyes. Right. And you can't see them right. because... Once again, that stratification of our country, you know, I yeah. expect you to be in a certain right, right, environment. Right. So very complicated, but it'll take more than law to resolve this. It takes, I think, the human perspective, what do we owe to each other? Yeah, but, but, but what you highlight is, and, and um, one of the Ukrainian uh, citizens just said it, on CNN the other night said, you know, U.S., we need you to help us. Like, we need you to pay, be willing to pay more for the gas if that's what it's going to take for, you know, you to stop him. And it, so to your point, yeah. we've got to be willing to, A, not just buy the cheap stuff yeah. or investigate where our stuff is actually coming from. That's right. right? Because I, I can tell you most people don't think about that or no. they buy whatever and have right. no clue and don't think about it. And you're right. So even intentionally or um, not trying to do that, we are contributing we are participating. to that system. Yeah, yeah whether yeah. we want to or not. And then that also victimizes us right? <clears throat> because we then feel helpless. I am a part, I'm just a cog right. in this wheel because how can I actually stop this? So I'll raise another example. Do you recall a few years ago the Rana Plaza uh, tragedy, which was in Bangladesh, I believe it was, where the factory collapsed, yeah, it yeah. fell down, yeah, right? Yeah. And hundreds of women were killed. Right. They were in a building which was unstable. And how do I connect that to human trafficking? They were exploited. They could not leave. Let's say you're hired, you're being paid very poorly, they're pointing to the walls. Look, there are these uh, cracks, etc. Right. They're not allowed to leave. And how is it connected to us? The labels, right? They were producing clothing. The labels span the range of labels. Right. I'm not going to say any names right, right. that we would be familiar with because how, as lawyers, do we make sure that our client doesn't have liability? 
I'm going to have third-party suppliers, aren't I? Right, and I'm right. going to have a contract that I'm going to say, third-party supplier, you have these responsibilities. Right, right. And when the lawsuit comes, I say, hey, it's not me. It's that's the right, third-party right. supplier. Right, right, right? right. So that's our system right. that allows this to happen. Mm. Um, but it's extremely entangled. Now, for today in Indiana, where are the children going to be fed where they're going to get emotional support, whether they be rich or poor, so that they're not vulnerable to be exploited. It's from that vulnerability right. that comes exploitability. Right. And, you know, we, uh, Indiana has a great um, civic engagement, uh, NGOs, nonprofits, etc. cetera. The, the government, this is where we should be engaged. The future of the city, yeah. the future of the country is with the children. That's right. And, uh, you know, we need to flip right. <laughs> our, our focus. Priorities. Yes. Right, right. So, so, Dean Bravo, so we've kind of alluded to this in this conversation, but we're all aware of what's going on in Ukraine. I've literally watched bombs. I, I never thought in my life I would see, like, literal bombs falling. And, and quite frankly, part of me is just like, Really? That just seems so old school. Like, we still dropping bombs? Like, you still doing that? That's a thing? Yeah. Um, it seems just so past world. You know, like, we are so far beyond that. But yet we're here. And we're here. We're, we are witnessing this in real life. Um, you and I have talked, again, you're a professor and legal scholar in international law. So you tell me your thoughts around What's currently happening, you know, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the role you believe the U.S. and the international community plays in, you know, resolving this or making this come to an end? What is our role here? Because I can tell you, you know, all the wars I've seen are in history books. I don't know anything about current, real day, like it's happening right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I do know, you know, I'm sure I represent so many others who, you know, are fully uncomfortable with just watching women and children fleeing. I mean, I'm thinking about what I would do, you know, if I just had to, in a moment's notice, pick up whatever you can and run for your life. Run and, for your life. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It just makes my heart sick. So what 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 are your thoughts here? Well, we're seeing a tragedy in the making on a number of levels. Both the tragedy of the impact on the civilians in Ukraine, the assault on Ukrainian statehood. It's existence as a legal entity, as a state yeah. under international law, is being assaulted by this invasion. In addition, we are seeing an assault on the post-World War II order. Right. Now, when I teach international law, I say to the students, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be talking about World War II quite a bit. Yeah. And why is that? Uh, World War II, we have the aggression of Hitler, we have the uh, allied countries coming together, and then we have the formation of the United Nations. Right, right. Why is that important? The purpose for the United Nations was to try to ensure that there would be no more war. Right. So one of the strongest prohibitions within the UN Charter is the prohibition on the use of force. A country should not use force against another country. The only exception, 
self-defense. And there really were discussions whether one should even be able to use it in self-defense. Right. Because as you can imagine, as we see today, I can cast anything as self-defense. Right, right, right. So right. that was the intention back in the 1940s, post the horrible World War decimation of Europe. And we, the U.S., fully engaged in the drafting of the U.N. Charter. And it set up a structure which was to help prevent future wars. Now, as I also say to my students, of course, I can look around and see every, you know, there are breaches going on all the time. Sure, sure. The scope of this breach is particularly egregious because Russia is a member of the Security Council, right. a permanent member of the Security Council. Right, I've heard this and, being discussed. Right. How can they sit on the Security Council well, and do this? Well, this is the irony then of the UN in that the UN, in a sense, freezes in time the power of those countries at the time of 1944-1945. So who are the permanent members? Russia, China, the U.S., France, and the U.K. And one would say, huh? Uh, where's China? Where is uh, India, okay. for example? Where are African countries? Where are countries from Latin America? Recall at that time, most of them were colonized. Right, right, So right. they're not there. So these five permanent members have the power to veto. Wow. If there were a Security Council resolution, we condemn, and therefore it is illegal, this military action by Russia or this military action by China or the U.S. or any of the following. right. I have a veto power. Right. So the law, international wow. law, doesn't help us. Right. Because they're, they're able to. Yes, they can <laughs> veto the resolution that would condemn themselves. So that, though, has been a way to restrain those permanent members because there are also other rotating members of the Security Council. And so the permanent members, too, would have to defend themselves within the Security Council chamber. Yeah. What Russia has done by attacking Ukraine, by openly seeking to destroy or demolish its statehood, is a fundamental attack on the way in which we have existed post-World War II. Yeah. And lest our, our, our listeners think, well, what's that got to do with me? Please understand, right. our monetary system springs from agreements uh, from post-World War II. Our trade system springs right. from that. The international sort of collaborations and peace that we've had come from those documents and that goal to live in peace with each other, even understanding that there are going to be breaches. And they have been breaches. Right, right. They continue to be breaches. But this is a really open aggression against that order. Now, what can uh, the U.S. and other countries do? Does violence beget violence? Will answering it with violence create even more violence? Um, I think that is the conundrum because right. as right. these states, and not only the permanent members, but other states have acquired nuclear weapons and they've acquired other armaments, the capacity to destroy each other has increased. And right. that was part of what the UN Charter was about. Let's agree not to destroy each other. Right. So I think this is taking us on the brink because the NATO countries, and the US is part of NATO, they were formed to help protect Europe from 
the USSR. The USSR no longer exists, but President Putin seems to be trying to recreate it right. uh, by taking Ukraine. Uh, and what can these members do? I think by coming together with the sanctions that they've imposed. And let's also point to the sanctions imposed by non-state actors. All the associate, I saw, what is that, a cat fancier association yeah, yeah, uh, that yeah. said no, no yeah. Ukrainian, no uh, Russian, Russian. Yeah. cats or cat yeah. owners can yeah. participate in I mean, these, you know, that's the extreme, but these actions to demonstrate that this behavior, this breach is very serious. I haven't seen it on that personal non-state level before. And I'm hopeful that it's going to have an impact. I think it is scary that um, Putin has talked about nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. It's and they've locked it's, down the Ukraine nuclear power plant or it's, whatever. It's mutually assured destruction, right. right? We're back to Cold War right. and all the things that were put in place to try and prevent right. the mutually assured destruction. Which so, seems just so, it just seems like in a flash we have like reverted back yeah. into history. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and where do we go from here? Like... You can't, you know, this is my thought is you can't just hit somebody in the mouth and expect that they're not going to retaliate or do something. Right. I don't know how you do as much as has been done already mm -hmm. and hasn't ceased yet. It hasn't ceased yet because he knows, as do the international lawyers, foreign affairs, international relations people realize the big flaw in the international system, well, some people would say it's a flaw, is that there are no enforcement mechanisms, right? Right. So think about in domestic law. I would say to my students, what if I'm speeding right. on the highway? Right, right. A uh, police officer comes along, gives me a ticket, I got to pay the ticket. In international law, frequently, if there's a breach, there's no way, even if you find under law... You take it to the international court, and you're found to have violated. How do you enforce and create remedy? It's difficult because you're talking about a country. You're talking about a state, That's right. especially a powerful state. So I may be able to enforce it, let's say, against Jamaica. Let's say Jamaica goes crazy and says, I'm invading Cuba or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or Haiti. It's easy to enforce it against a small, less powerful state. But when we talk about the larger states the armed states, right. it's much harder to enforce international law, which is why diplomacy is the better way to go. But we've blown past. He's blown past diplomacy, and I know they've had a series of talks, and it's not, it's not pulling back. Right, right. So I, I, too, do not know where this ends. Yeah. Well, well, and it seems even more problematic and troublesome for me because – you know, Putin and President Xi in China are, you know, BFFs, evidently. And so, you know, what's what's the phrase? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Mm -hmm. So when you start talking about these, you know, major global powers who, you know, may have their own challenges but have a, a common enemy or a common, mm -hmm. you know, nemesis in the U.S., it becomes problematic. I mean... It, as I think about, you know, what could happen, 
things could get really ugly. Not that they haven't already. Right. But for the mainland and U.S., pretty easily. I think it can get pretty ugly for everyone. I don't know, though, that China, which has been successful as a country pulling itself out of poverty uh, and, for the most part, its isolation as part of this post-World War II order. Right. China joined the WTO to get take advantage of those new trading regimes. China is active in international organizations does China see an advantage in a world order that is now broken? I don't know. It would be great if China were to use its influence, though, right. uh, to speak with Russia to say we don't support. We're not in support of this, right? Because China has been very much as well about sovereignty, right? right? It always talks about sovereignty and its statehood. Uh what Russia has done contravenes those concepts right. of sovereignty and statehood. Right, right. And I'll throw in another concept, which is the concept of self-determination, which came also after World War II, the idea that a people had a right to determine their future. And this was very important in the post-World War II, post-colonization era. Right. So at the end of World War II, the vast majority of the world was in colonies. Right, right. And as we move toward self-determination, countries like Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Latin America became independent because of self-determination. Now, the Ukrainian people, they have a right to self-determination, right. and they want to be Ukrainian. Right, right. So it's violating not only concepts of statehood, but self-determination on the part of these people yeah. to invade and destroy Invade and destroy, and and my concept is, to, and for what? Like, to go take these people land and have them, yeah. you know, bow down? I mean, it just seems so... Retrograde. Amen. Yes! Retrograde, like, yes, yes. It really, really does. Yeah. And so it is just challenging, and it is, it is bothersome and worrisome that how long has he been thinking about this? You know, like, how long has he been planning this? I don't think this is just something he just woke up Saturday morning and decided. No, you know? this has been a time in the making. Absolutely. And, you know, folks will forget, may have forgotten this, but he had already invaded and taken Crimea. That's right. Which is part of Ukraine and was helping to sustain separatist movements within Ukraine. But we go further back to the Republic of Georgia, Georgia. in the Caucasus, yep. where there were uh, separatist uh, republics within Georgia, and Russia went in yeah. and helped them to break away from the internationally recognized borders yes. of Georgia. But that all helps with the influence, you know, that sort of uh, hearkening back to the USSR, where I have these uh, client states yeah. around me with Russia as the center. Well, I think what is so troublesome for me is all this is, you know, going down or jumping off when America's democracy is in such flux, right? We just had January 6th happen, you know, a year ago, mm. where, you know, internally we have 
questioned our own democracy and mm -hmm. challenged and tested. You now have this rise of autocracy when democracy, which has kind of been the understood and accepted, right. you know, institution is now not looking so strong. The question for the U.S. and for us to ask, are we in a democracy? Because we have a very strange structure. Um, and part of that structure with the Electoral College mm -hmm. is about slavery, believe it or not. It's about making sure that, I mean, you've heard of the two-thirds rule. Yeah, absolutely. It's all part of that. So the two-thirds rule to make sure that the southern states then, that they would not be outcounted and right. outvoted. So I'm going to I'm going to count two-thirds of your enslaved persons toward my representation in the federal system. And it was a way to ensure those states, as they wanted and thought about joining this union, this new union, yeah. uh, that was the compromise or one of the compromises to give to them. And we live with that today. So that democracy, coming from the Greek word demos, the people, it's we are mediated through this electoral college. It's not our direct vote. Right. It's not our direct vote. It then has to go through this electoral college and all the drama that comes with that or has come with it in this century in particular. In addition, the kinds of activity of limiting people's ability to vote uh, mm -hmm. also stems, I'm, I'm sorry to say, from the colonial era. Yeah. The colonial era, the people who were supposed to vote were white men yeah, that's right. off certain property. So the concept of recognizing the right to vote of everyone, you know, women had to fight for a Absolutely. long time to, to even have the right to vote. Uh, African Americans, people of color, to have the right to vote. And we see that being taken away legally, the law Absolutely. being used as a barrier to participation. Which it always has. Which That's, it always that has. Goes back to the but very it comes beginning. back to, from, to the beginning. That's and right. so we have movements saying, yes, everyone should participate. But then there's that pre existing thing of only some, those who are educated, those who are yep. property, those are the people who should be able to vote. And we're going to put in place mechanisms to stop the people that we don't agree with, to stop them from voting. So it calls into question how democratic yeah. is our democracy. Our <laughs> democracy. Yeah. And the further we go to limiting access to the ballot, yes. then it becomes performative. We're performing democracy, but it is not really That's democracy. Right. Um, okay, I'm going to throw in Jamaica again. So coming from Jamaica, on election day was a day off. Yeah. Everything was closed. Yeah, yeah. Every, the, the, they went and voted. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, the that was what you went, did. That's what you did. You yeah. went and voted. Uh, you know, so things such as uh, I'm going to close at 6, even though I know that people get off work at this time. You know, all these hurdles to participation I don't, it's a power thing. It absolutely it is a power thing. It actually is a power thing. And, and it's a reversion. We are literally watching 
our democracy be reverted back. The liberties and the freedoms that so many people fought for Mm -hmm. are being, you know, covertly. It's not a big, you know, it's not all in your face, but just covertly, state by state. They're reverting that back. It's, it's very it's very challenging to think about as well the way in which now we are members of the bar, right? We are officers oh of the goodness, court. Absolutely. We have a responsibility for justice. And what does that entail when we see injustice taking place so that that fundamental right to participate in government, yeah. right, to vote to say who should represent you is being challenged using the very law that we are students of, that we are to uphold. Yeah. And that uh, there doesn't seem to be a way. You take it all the way to the highest court the in the land. Court. And um, the essence of the claim people are being prevented from voting uh, doesn't win. Right. Right. Which is scary because that's just the first piece of all the dominoes falling. Right. Right. Because if they can take your right to vote, they can take whether you can, you know, what you can do with your body, who you can love, where you can go to school. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's just one domino after the other, which is why I'm like, we're on a very slippery slope. I mean, it doesn't we're only one generation, a couple generations away from having these freedoms. Right. Right. Those are the things that I'm glad you can opine on those. And you're, you're very calm, but you're, you don't have any solutions to this crazy. No, so this is a, this is a problem, I think, with academics. Right. We come up with <laughs> <laughs> we, we can identi- talk about it all day. <laughs> we identify the problems, but we also identify the problems to getting to a solution. So <laughs> what we want is problem solving. Right. Right. Yeah, maybe that's the difference. The academics goes in, goes in and they talk about all yeah. the different things and they don't come up with a solution. But but to I, your I point. apologize to my fellow academics. They will tell me that, no, there are solutions within our literature. Well, but the point is we're in a place where there no, are no easy solutions. Right? No, we, There's no right. easy solutions right. anymore. We're in a place. And, and that's to all the problems. Right. Like not just the war in Ukraine or COVID or like it's everything. Everything we've gotten ourselves to all twisted up in a pretzel where there are no easy solutions to anything anymore. Right. And that's a lot because people are not working together and people are not seeing the humanity in each other and wanting the best for each other. Right. Rather than absolutely I want you to fail or I want you to suffer or be in pain. Right. And not just not they're in different corners and how do you have a conversation? Right. Uh, I think that is the huge uh, challenge. Conversation has been debased. Just have a civil conversation. Don't throw rocks. Don't throw stones. Yeah, that's right. Swears. Don't throw horrible things. Just talk like, you know. Normal people. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you can communicate. So talk in order to communicate, to really communicate, to share ideas, not to communicate, I hate you, I despise you. But, you know, how can we come to some kind of understanding to see through each other's eyes? Yeah. So this is this has been great conversation. And I thank you for this because I I mean, it's it's weighing on me, you know, and I'm I'm sure it's weighing on everybody. We're all watching this and we're all watching this and feeling un un 
position to do anything, right. to really make an impact. So right. thanks for talking us through and, it. And, and uh, you know, it's great powers doing what great powers do. I guess one of the quote-unquote benefits is that Europe has in large part been, that's Western Europe, been reliant on the U.S. as the person or the entity to assure safety and has been, I think, reluctant to engage militarily or to engage with uh, these serious threats, unable to see them, even as the Biden administration was trying to diplomatically talk about all that was happening, right? Revealing he's going to invade this thing. Right, right, right. And the Germans have started stepping up you know, uh, other countries are stepping up to realize this is a genuine it's real threat. Deal. It's, yeah. it's yeah. real. Yeah. Once again, the post-World War II order being brought into question. Right. Which, as I, as I said before, so much of the way we live depends on it without, without the normal average person Even under, right. understanding it. Right. Our monetary system, how currencies are exchanged how goods are exchanged, how mm. people move, it's all post-World War II consensus, agreements, et cetera. So this all brings it into question. And, and so what that leads me to is should this continue, there could be absolute real consequences yes. or impact for Indiana, not just U.S. nationally, yes. but Indiana specifically. Yeah. Yeah, so whether it continues or not, there will be impact because it will create, let's say he succeeds in taking a chunk out of Ukraine or creating a client statehood for Ukraine. That destabilizes the whole region, the whole region mm-hmm. but also the world because it says to others exactly. with similar inclinations. Exactly. This is something that I can do. That's right. So I, I think I mentioned to you in past in the past when I would teach international law, I would say countries don't take territory by first by force anymore because of the UN Charter. No, I can't say that. Right, 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 right. right? And so that leads to great. It, it gives more force to the use of aggression right. and military force, which is not what we want. Right. Right. That's but, not where we get world peace. But, but Dean Bravo, <laughs> let me ask you this, and then I, I will wrap up. But I, I do want to ask, because I, I've, I've seen these Ukrainian people on the news saying, we need no fly zones. We need the U.S. Mm-hmm. NATO sitting back and watching. You know, I, and I feel them. I, I, yeah. I feel their pain like, y'all the big bad wolves. You're the U.S. Yeah. Our thought was that anything like this happens, the U.S. swoops right. in and saves the day. And so I'm sitting back as a U.S. citizen saying, okay, you, we're getting called to the carpet right now. What you going to do? You right. know, you've been talking about it. And, and so you do feel this kind of pressure of we are getting tested on where do you stand? What is your force? Mm-hmm. What, what are your capacities right. and your alliances? And who are your allies? And, you know, because right. it's a fine line of, 
you know, yeah, we're just going to come in and drop a bomb and settle everything. Mm-hmm. Or we're not, hey, we're, we're going to send you all some, we're going to institute some sanctions, we're going to send you some weapons, but we're not putting our people over there. Right. And I understand that, too. Like, again, I got an 18-year-old son coming up. I'm not trying to hear about no wars, right? I'm right. not. That's not. But on the flip side, man, who's going to do something? Like, right. And if it's not us, then who? You know? So, right. I don't know. It, it, it again it, a it, bunch it, of questions. It's it's a very dicey situation because Ukraine had wanted to be a part of NATO, right? right? Which would have meant this this was a treaty is a treaty for mutual defense, right? And Putin saw that as a threat. The idea that. Ukraine would become part of NATO because that's the way in which the Western European countries were protected from aggression from the Soviet, from Russia. Um, If the U.S. comes in, a couple of things. One, Ukraine has asked them to do so. So you can come in legally if that country asks you to come in. But then there's the political, both political international and political domestic uh, whether despite folks agonizing in front of their television, whether they actually want to see right. U.S. troops involved. Right. And we know that there's a long history f- following Vietnam of not wanting U.S. troops to be actually involved. And then there's the whole international economic, I mean, international arena. So you come in for Ukraine, but when there are wars in yep. this country, Moldova that, or Poland or Sweden, do you, do yeah, you come exactly, in? Exactly. But not only that, what about when there were wars in Latin America or in Africa? Yeah. or what, You didn't come in yeah, there, did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, as well, we can't ignore Putin talked about nuclear weapons. Right. And everybody's got nuclear weapons pointed at each other. And what will trigger that? Right. So it's, I'm sure, I I would not want to be in the decision maker's shoes. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's so much to weigh. And, of course, hindsight will always be 2020, and we will all say you should have done this, you should have done that. Uh, But to actually make the decision, so many factors to weigh. One one final question for you, going back to your role as dean and ambassador for McKinney School of Law. Um, What would you advise young, budding, um, you know, men and women, particularly diverse men and women who are contemplating their career path, their Mm -hmm. trajectory, um, and uh, who may be interested, um, or or like me, who didn't really have an exposure to law, Mm -hmm. what would you advise them on, A, getting exposure, getting some um, opportunities to be in front of lawyers or speak to lawyers about what that looks like, Mm -hmm. and then also about the multiple opportunities that there really is to pursue a law career, meaning Mm -hmm. the academic part versus governmental private practice, corporate positions, there mm-hmm. really are a lot of opportunities to, you know, engage in the law, even if you're not necessarily practicing law. Right, right. Good question. And of course, all depends on where they, what stage are they? Are they in high school? Are they in college? Right, right. Uh, contemplating going on to become a lawyer? Or are they in the workforce contemplating in high school programs like, um, 
uh, mock trials, sure, being sure. able to participate in mock trial kinds of programming. I know many law schools, not just us, will have relationships with high schools. We have um, a relationship with tech for students who are interested in law. Um, there are organizations within the city that we have reached out to, for example, to say, you work with high school students, let's make sure that they get exposed to sure. law as one of the options sure. that they could choose as well. In addition, then going into college, you don't have to be on the pre-law track because, as you know, Angela, you can become a lawyer with a wide variety of um, academic backgrounds. Sure. Uh, what we really are looking for, the ability to think, to write, and, you know, that passion for law. You could uh, come from the sciences, the, you know, political sciences, history, etc. So that traditional dynamic of pre-law isn't really there, but you should connect with your pre-law advisors. You should also feel free to reach out to enrollment or admissions offices at law schools because they will work with you from before you even apply, before okay. you graduate and before you even apply to become uh, to come to that law school because it's a question of the pipeline. How do you right. give exposure and understanding to folks that this is something that they might want to do? And we do have some uh, formal pipeline programs as well. And then for those out in the community who are interested, I'd say reach out as well and you know look at the programming we have. We have programming uh, to teach and reach out to not only lawyers, but to members of the community so that things that impact the community, we can uh, be part of the conversation, even if we don't find the solution yeah, yeah. Uh, to do that. Yeah. Um, reach out to uh, attorneys that you may know and ask about their experience, whether it's a family friend or uh, someone who comes to give a talk at your school, sure. uh, because they can tell you about how they did it. And I would say part of the responsibility, of course, is with the high school administration, the K-12 to administration, to bring those people to campus, whether it's career day or whatever the case may be, so that students can see them. Absolutely. And see that there are people who have started where they did or started somewhere else, and they were able to succeed. I'll give a shout-out to uh, the Center for Leadership Development, for mm -hmm. example, that does a terrific job uh, preparing uh, children for going to college and exposing them to so many different uh, opportunities Absolutely. is just a wonderful organization that we have here My in son Indianapolis. Like taking all their all their courses, well, I got him go. signed up. Yes, there you go. So they're they're just wonderful organizations. So I think that's what we need to do. But then we as lawyers should get involved in the community. Um, be the ones volunteering for these mock trials, or if somebody invites you to come talk at career day, go and talk at career day sure. and be part of that messaging. Because these folks need to see somebody. They also need mentors. Sure. And so we can't do it alone. It has to be mutual reaching out. And there is no question that mentors in the uh, field of law are absolutely necessary because the field of law and tr navigating law right. is its own path. It's unlike right. any other type of school. It's not grad school. It's not medical school. 
it has its own path, and you kind of need to know that. So right. You, can you have to know that, that. The, you know, there, there are so many different pathways in the world. So you would talk to actually, I forgot that aspect, you know, you are uh, about to graduate or you're in law school. How do you choose your trajectory? Go to the programmings that uh, the law school will have. But we also, here in Indianapolis, we've got the Indiana State Bar Association, the sure. ISBA. We've got Indie Bar. Sure. We've got the Affinity Bars, the MBCA, APABA. You know, reach out to these organizations uh, because they will be able to tell you how you can become a member, how you can meet other lawyers, and then expose yourself to different kinds of practice. But I will say as well, whichever law school you will be at, their career services or professional development will also bring different opportunities to you to help you understand that there's so many pathways after graduation. Well, Dean Pravo, we thank you so much. This has been very enlightening. It's been very informative. And again, I'm a, I'm a thank you for your calming nature because you have <laughs> calmed me about this whole Ukraine Russia deal, at least to give some, again, give some context. Um, some historical context and some legal context because, again, I'm watching like most people and just like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. And, you know, it's a bad day. You know, it's just something you don't want to be witness to. So um, with that, I'm going to congratulate you again for being the first diverse woman, female dean of the law school. I'm so proud of you. Super excited to have you on today and to have an opportunity to speak with you and get to know you better. Thank you for all you're doing in the community, for showing up and being represented for all the little girls and little brown girls and black girls and diverse girls who may not, like myself, had never seen a black woman or a diverse woman as a lawyer and certainly didn't know that was a path that they could take. So thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for being here today. And we will wrap up this episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum. Thank you all for listening.